Spain's Susana Rodriguez was crowned the Paratriathlon Paralympic champion in the PTVI class at Tokyo 2020, adding to her two world titles in fine style and by an impressive four minute margin. Also a doctor in a parallel life, Sue has been on the front line of the country's battle against the COVID pandemic that forced her to pause her Paralympic ambitions and focus on her other career until the rearranged game. So Sue, welcome to the World Triathlon Podcast. How and where are you? Uh, hello, I'm very happy to be with you. I'm a frequent uh, listener of your ITU well, World Triathlon podcast, so I am. I feel honored to be with you. And I am now back to Spain in Vigo, which is my city uh, near Pontevedra. Everyone knows Pontevedra in triathlon oh, yeah. world. Mm -hmm. So I am back here and a bit tired because of the trip back from Tokyo, but you know, really happy to be back with my family and friends after like more than two months away, uh, it's it's really nice. I can imagine. Um, yes, huge congratulations on your achievement out there. Have you had time to reflect? So when did you actually travel back? And, you know, is it when you're 30,000 feet up and you have that moment to just pause and think that, does it overcome you a bit, the, the emotion and the achievement? Yeah, well, it was um, a bit... Um, a bit delayed the process of uh, thinking about everything that happened in in Tokyo 2020 triathlon race like because um, we race on the 28th morning then on the 29th I have the uh, hits for the 1500 meters in the Paralympics 11 race and then uh, <laughs> Uh, unexpected, I qualified for the final, which was on the 30th, and on the 30th at night, I was uh, taking the flight back home. So it was very um, busy schedule until I took the flight back, and I think it was there when I realized um, that uh, everything that ha happened uh, was amazing, that all the brutal preparation ahead of the games uh, had paid off, and I think I needed some more weeks to, to realize about about everything yeah it'll be a nice nice period to, to just sort of remember parts of what presumably was quite a blur each one of those days where you were doing the familiarizations and so on and and you know that presumably those pre days in the lead up to the race were are incredibly valuable and and important for you as an athlete and all the athletes to start to focus the mind and and did you feel that as the days were ticking by and it was getting closer that you were getting more and more confident or were the nerves kicking in or I like a lot doing the familiarizations because uh, as a blind athlete uh, it's very important to feel what will happen in the course and to know what's coming ahead um, and to plan everything with my guide so I did um, the swim like you need to learn uh, how many boys there are, uh, what will be uh, any advice of our guide if we have to turn right or left because in the water you cannot um, talk about anything, you just have to focus on going ahead and going fast and, and be very sensitive to, to realize if you are going um, uh, far from the guide with the tether, you just uh, feel the sens sensations in your leg. And then the bike course uh, was technical, but flat. I, I like these uh, kind of courses in the middle of the cities. It was a bit like a Yokohama World Series course, and I really love um, this kind of, of uh, venue. And then the run, it was just also in the middle of the city with some turns. 
and I felt really confident when we were uh, when we had uh, get to know all these um, all these uh, places. Mm. Uh, it it made me be very calm. Um, uh, nerves just came the day before the race because those final hours for me are um, <laughs> critical and terrible. I always say why I am here. <laughs> And I think I, I'm not going to come again, but then you finish the race and you said, okay, I need the next as soon as possible. Really? So on the start line, you, you tend to be um, rather than, right, let's go. It's more, oh, why am I doing this? I could quite easily not. Uh, well, when I am at the pontoon, I just want to start and I feel um, fast and furious. But for me, the difficult part is just the day before the race and the night before the race. Uh, then on race day, race day I, I change my mind and I feel really ready. But the final hours uh, are the, for me the most uh, difficult. And in the Paralympics, everything gets like magnified. You know, it's like we have been waiting five years for this race. Um, finally, it arrived and you just want to do it. And, and do your best in there. So a lot to discuss with you, but would like to start with what what is your degree of impairment? Because obviously there are some, you know, PTV athletes who are completely blind, some who partially sighted and so on. So yeah, where, where do you stand on that spectrum? Uh, well, the PTVI category uh, is divided like in three different classes called uh, one, two, and three. The lower the number it is, the more severe the impairment it is. And this is the same in triathlon in all the para sports. You know, the lower the number, the more big it's the impairment. So I am in the PTVI one category, which is for the totally blind or a very uh, small remaining site. Um, so uh, we race with the blackout goggles uh, in with the reason that uh, we are all uh, at the same level when the the race is ahead you know yeah. uh, it's this is very important and this is the same also in all para sports like swimming athletics or triathlon um, this has been a change for me because I, I was in the BTVI2 category and I just uh, changed uh, in the last uh, season. So I had to get adapted to this uh, new situation, but it's okay. I, I have uh, done it uh, well, I think. Um, I had trained a lot to Tokyo and this has not been a, a challenge. You know, mm. uh, the BTVI races, we had a factor system. Um, which tries to equal the, the field. Uh, in the case of the female, it's uh, three minutes 48. In the case of the male, I think it's 3.18, if I remember well. Um, this makes like the races are very different to, to other races because when you are in the PTVI one category, you start and they come chasing. And when you are on the other side, you are behind and you have to chase all the time. Yeah. Um, well, I have been in the two sides and and it's uh, it's quite uh, challenging both. Um, so uh, this is our category. It's um, We rely on the guides for the full race. And I do my full training uh, schedule with different guides in my city. Um, because my guide, uh, Sara, she lives in Barcelona. So I have friends uh, who help me for 
uh, everything here, except some turbo training at home. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel very pleased uh, to all of them because if without them, I couldn't do this sport. No. Was the move from two to one because of deterioration of your eyesight or re reclassification of? Uh, yeah, um, well, I um, had been classified in 2019 for parathletics, so um, I had um, a problem which uh, got deteriorated since uh, 2016 and the years after. Uh, it has not been a so big change because I, I was like in the in the down part of the PTVI2 category, but it was a change. So this happens sometimes in Parasport that you uh, are reclassified and it's, well, it's one part of our sport that we have to uh, do like it's two years, it's four years, or it depends on what the classification uh, panels decide. And throughout your life, how has your eyesight gone? Is it, were you born with a, with a heavy impairment? Uh, yes, I was born with a heavy impairment due to albinism. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens in albinism is that the central part of the retina, which makes you see the images in good resolution, um, this part is uh, undeveloped. So since birth, the people with albinism had uh, some kind of eye deterioration. There are different types of albinism. So depending on the type, uh, this will be um, heavier or lighter and then apart from this I have a disease on the optic nerve so this is what has uh, made the biggest um, challenge uh, during the years uh, for me. I think it must be pretty difficult for anyone to imagine what it must be like to complete a triathlon without being able to see what you're doing and you talking earlier about the the familiarizations Yes, obviously they, they take on a huge extra meaning when you're, that's literally your first feeling of, of the course, right? So you, you're taking those presumably very deliberately and really meticulously planning with Sarah during, yeah. during those familiarizations, are you? Yes, uh, we, um, I'm not going to share all my secrets, <laughs> but <laughs> for all the people to know a bit more about the, the blind and visual impairment triathlon, um, getting to know the course, it's absolutely 10% um, uh, important. And we talk about everything. Uh, and when I say everything, it's absolutely everything in the race, um, except on the swim. Um, I, I will know all the, all the race course in my head, uh, how many boys, if it's turning right, if it's turning left, uh, when we are going to go out of the water, if there is one ramp, like for example, in Tokyo, there was one ramp and it was like this. Um, one more ramp, one more uh, flat part, one more little ramp, and then going down a little ramp. I learned everything in my head. Um, then uh, we have to uh, decide um, how we are going to put the bike, the helmets, the shoes, the running tethers, um, where I am going to drink, uh, where I am going to get up on the saddle, uh, we talk absolutely uh, about all the race. 
uh, and for me, um, I, I like to do the, the course, like because I can realize, uh, for example, if there is more distance from the pontoon to the first boy, or if it is more from the second second boy to the exit, I can realize a bit um, if the difference is big, but um, you cannot actually, when you are swimming, know at any moment if it is very near or very far. Mm. Um, it's just uh, going ahead and paying attention that you don't get a lot of hitting with your guide and you maintain the, the distance. Like um, there's like a rule that you have, you can have one and a half meters head to head distance, but I like to swim uh, almost at the same level of my guides. Um, and the tether is at the waist or at the leg? The tether is on the leg. Yeah. Uh, we take it near the hip. And these uh, different athletes uh, use it some in the ankle, some in the knee. We take it in the in the hip. Um, the, the rule just means that the tether uh, cannot be more than 80 centimeters long and it has to be elastic and from a bright color. Um, but you, you know, you cannot imagine, you, you can know what will happen in the course, but you cannot, when you are racing, you cannot actually imagine if something it is near or far. Mm -hmm. You have, you just have to keep going and wait until the instructions of your guide. Mm. Does she, would your guide always swim on the same side as you? Like every time you, have you always had? Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, I always take my guides in the in my right side. It doesn't matter if it is for swimming or for running, because when I was a kid and I had a, a less level of vision impairment, my good uh, eye was the left. So I always wanted to have a, like the protection of the guide in the right. Mm. And now, in fact, I cannot actually write, do anything with the guide in the left. And when I am with my guides in the athletes' village or in the street or taking food at the at the village dining hall, I always have them in the right. It's just something very stupid, but <laughs> to get I cannot, used to. yes, I cannot work with some with anyone in my left. Yeah. <laughs> and over the years, how how has the guy? I mean, your relationship with them, I suppose can be it can be more than just that sporting moment right but at the same time it could just be someone that you don't have any relationship with at all but you race brilliantly with is that like how does that how has that sort of evolved or changed or um, well um it is um after so many years in your sport and now i look back and I say that it is very important to have a good guide with a nice uh, sporting level, but um, you also need to have a good uh, relationship out of the uh, out of the racing uh, venue right. because uh, it's twenty four hours uh, together. Mm. And uh, well, if you have a very like not severe impairment and you can go away and do whatever you want, even if it's in, not in your city or, okay, you can maybe go train and go race and it's okay and, and don't have a, a good relationship. But when you need uh, to be with your guide for daily things, uh, things need to work uh, <laughs> perfectly in and out of the race. 
like there are some times at my sports career that I had problems with a specific guide. And then at the moment of a specific race, we both were very professionally professional and performed very good uh, races. Uh, I can remember some, but I think in the end, um, it's very important to, to have a, a good relationship. And if this doesn't happen, it is better to, to change because um, especially this last year uh, with all the challenges that I have faced, I, I one time, uh, my sports psychologist asked me to write in a paper, uh, why um, did I do triathlon? And I, I realized that the most big reason for me to do triathlon is to enjoy with the people that I do this sport. So um, if this at that point doesn't happen, then it is better to change uh, the guide that to not stop, stop uh, loving the sport that you really love. Yeah. So had you had, had Tokyo and Sarah always been hand in hand? Was that who you who you were planning working with at, at Tokyo the whole time? Uh, yeah. Well, I I started to work with Sarah last year in the middle of the pandemic. Right. I had uh, been racing uh, in 2018 and 2019 with Paula before I have raced with Mabel, who was my guide in Rio, um, before I was racing with Magellan, who was my guide from 2011 to 2016, you know, uh, I have had changes, but, you know, life is about sometimes changes and decisions, and it's okay. It's not easy, because each of the guides uh, is someone who you have uh, trust them with your life, literally. I mean, yeah. uh, when you go down the hill in the sun, uh, 80 kilometers an hour in the bike behind, it's, you are trusting your guy with your life. And any of my guys uh, are very important for me and they have uh, an important influence in my, in my life, of course, not only my, in my sports career, and I feel uh, very um, grateful to, to all of them. I have to say that that descent and turn in Lausanne was one of the most amazing things in the in the Paris competitions where it was it was it was so fast but everything looked so in sync um, and it kind of just really hit home how it's not this isn't just two people on a bike this is the sort of perfect rhythmic compatibility of two people it was amazing yeah, uh, it is, it is. Um, but um, I think uh, a lot of details show that a team is uh, synchronized and that has worked a lot of a team. Uh, my coach uh, says when he's watching the races, well, this year he has not been in the races because of the, of the pandemic. Uh, but when he sees the races, he says, I can know uh, who will train with the guide frequently and who will train with other guys or who will train in their own and they are just together for the race. He sees different things and he can realize uh, who is on sync and who works like just a person and who are working like two different people. Mm. Like um, sometimes it's, it's just repeating the actions uh, 1000 times. Uh, I, will, I will always remember um, before the Rio Paralympics uh, with my guide Mabel, we have decided to try and do the flying dismount of the bike. 
and we have done hundreds of these mounts. And when we get into the Paralympics, there was a lot of noise in the transition area. And it was very difficult to listen to her instructions. And ah. um, I was almost hitting a wall, like when I was off the bike. You know, you have to repeat and repeat and repeat. And this is uh, when blind athletes doing sports, um, it's a lot about repeating because you have to learn the things like with sensations and you cannot learn like copying what another person is doing. So everything is much slower and, and it is harder to teach, I think. And then to find yourself, yeah, suddenly not able to hear because of the crowd noise and you're like suddenly, whoa, the instructions have stopped and communications, everything. That must have been pretty terrifying. It's uh, difficult because the information you have, uh, when you are not 100% sure that you will get it when they tell you, it's a bit uh, difficult, yes. But this, um, it, it happens to me when I am in a very noisy place uh, or very crowded and noisy that I feel like mm. um, I cannot difference the, the, the noise, the important noises and the important information. It's like, um, a sensitive, sensitive bomb of, of information and this is a bit difficult mm. but uh, and more in a race when the adrenaline levels are in the sky <laughs> and in your so you did the 1500 meters got through your heat somewhat against what you thought perhaps but i don't um and you you have a male guide male guides yeah uh, mixed guides are, are are allowed in athletics Yes, in athletics, uh, male guides are allowed, and almost one hundred, almost ten percent of the athletes have male guides in athletics because it is a way easier to find a male guide who can easily run uh, in fast times, and you know it's it's much easier to find male guides. In fact, in my city, I train one hundred percent time with male guides, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I I did this race. Um, I really like racing the stadium you know uh, even it's uncrowded and even I couldn't see anything at all there um, we in athletics we race with also with um, uh, blindfolds and down the blindfolds we wear eye patches uh, so you can see literally anything um, but when you go out of the stadium and you listen to the to the person who is making the presentations uh, you listen to the, no the noise of the voice and you realize that it is absolutely um, very big the stadium <laughs> you get the sense of the yeah the echo and things yeah of course like there was no people and no crowd but when i listened to the name of the of all the athletes, uh, I realized, oh, this is very big. I had never been into an Olympic stadium. And because I was doing the triathlon, I have not gone to the yeah. opening ceremony and nor to, to see the stadium. My guide went alone. Um, I, my first time was for running the heats and I did a good performance and, and I was very happy with it. But when I was in the 300 meters, I realized that my legs were still in Odaiba Park. <laughs> <laughs> just when you needed them <laughs> I did everything I could you know and when you give 120% of you uh, it doesn't matter what happens but you can 
you can feel happy for it. So is athletics the next challenge for you? We're not going to lose you from the world of triathlon, are we? I really, you know, I always say that when you come, for the Paral- come from the Paralympics, uh, you don't have to believe anything that the people say in the next upcoming weeks. Uh, because like the Paralympics are like uh, emotional and physical uh, bomb. And I think this doesn't allow you to think clearly until some weeks uh, have passed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I really like triathlon and, and the way of racing triathlon, of getting points, racing around the world. Um, I really love triathlon. And sometimes uh, I think I can still push harder and get better. I don't feel I have already arrived to my best um, option, to my best version. So um, I would like to to try and get the sport to a bit of harder level. (laughs) Uh, But I like running a lot. And maybe I would like to go to some Parathletics World Championships saying that I have to do full preparation for it because I always go uh, as a triathlete and I get there and I realize that all the other girls have done uh, 100% dedication training for that. So I feel um, that I would like to know uh, where can I arrive if mm. I prepare the race? So not easy to discover sport at all, let alone become a Paralympic champion. Um, is it something that you just gravitated to very early on and were always very active and, and wanted to compete and compete as whatever level, you know, the highest level you could, or did it come later on? Uh, well, I always like uh, sports, but my background, my family background is not uh, athletic at all. You know, my parents or my grandparents ne- never had the opportunity of practicing any sport. They lived in small uh, villages in my country and they had just to focus their life on working and there was not free time for this kind of activity. Mm. Uh, this was not, was not an obstacle so that my family always wanted me to try sports uh, to try what sports I wanted and then I started swimming because they my parents don't know how to swim and they wanted me to to know how to swim just in case we went to to the beach or on holidays and I could manage in case of any emergency Mm -hmm. Uh, the same for my sister who is two years older and then I tried uh, athletics when I was 10 years old and after that, uh, I never left uh, competing sports um, in athletics. Then I had other years in swimming. And I got to know triathlon finally in 2010, when it was not already a Paralympic sport. It was on the beat to, to Rio uh, 2016. Um, but the first time I did a duathlon race, uh, I was not very fit. I have to say this, but I really liked uh, the combination of uh, multi-sports. And now I am absolutely uh, amazed by this sport. Um, and I really like that uh, it's quite inclusive, the, the situation that we have the world championships, the continental championships uh, with the Olympic sports at the same place uh, with the elite uh, para triathletes. This is very good for all. Uh, I think we have the possibility of learning from each other. And this does not happen in, in, in other para sports uh, apart from triathlon 
Yeah, I hear that. And it was something that Yetzer Platt was talking about as well. Um, and he had the opportunity to train with the Dutch uh, Olympic team. And, and he said that, yeah, that proximity of, of the triathlon and the paratriathlon is something that he obviously got a lot out of as well. I, I think so. Uh, I have done different training camps with uh, different athletes, uh, Spanish uh, elite athletes in triathlon like uh, Fernando Alarza or Antonio Serrat. We have been seeing them always in the top uh, spots of, of um, triathlon in the last years. Um, and it's very good to, to see them train and to train together. We finally do the same sport. Uh, there are different uh, adaptations, but, you know, uh, obviously the volume is not the same because we race for sprint distance and they usually do Olympic distance. But this is the, the biggest difference. Uh, there are not many differences. The, the effort is the same, uh, no more and nor less. And, and it is very good to all, I think. And for you as someone, you know, finding a way in sport and wanting to, to develop as a, you know, so you started out as a swimmer and so on, at what point did you realize, you know, I've spoken to a few athletes um, who uh, didn't realize as young people, didn't, you know, for, by virtue of where they lived or, you know, living in a small town or whatever, that the opportunities I mean, the Paralympics being the very top of them, but even sort of regional opportunities for people, whether it's, you know, missing a limb or, or with visual impairment um, did have. So did you, you know, did you have a moment or a, a, a situation where someone suddenly introduced you to the pathway that you were able to follow to representing your country? Or was it a very gradual process? Um, well, it was a very gradual process, um, but everything started uh, when I was 10. I had, um, I used to go to a normal school uh, with children with no disabilities, but uh, twice a week I had a, a special, like a special needs teacher for the blind uh, from a national organization that there is in my country. And she came like twice a week and with her, um, I did the, the special work for a child with vision impairment. She taught me like to uh, write and read in braille and these kind of things that you don't learn in normal school. And one day she came and she offered me the possibility to go to, a, of going to a, a para-athletics championships for kids with visual impairment in all the country. And for me, this was the, like the beginning of everything. Then um, in my city, uh, although it is quite big, there are not like facilities, special facilities for people with disabilities. So you just have to go to a, to a team with other children with no, with any kind of impairment. Um, this makes sometimes things difficult because like the coaches, um, sometimes don't know how to like to explain you the things when you don't see and this is difficult but then it is good because it's a fully inclusive uh, situation so uh, it has been gradual um, then I, I got to know triathlon by chance uh, I had some friends in triathlon and I was looking at the results of some national uh, championships. I went into the Spanish National Federation website and find um, a, a little place where it said paratriathlon. I didn't know even this existed, so I clicked with the, with the mouse and 
found some information about uh, duathlon race, which was coming in two months. And I said, okay, this is my next challenge. Mm -hmm. And after I tried that, uh, then I went to, to race uh, my first triathlon in Madrid, in Casa de Campo, where we had the World Series like until 2012, I think. Then I went to race in Hyde Park. Uh, finally, in 2010, the, the triathlon was uh, and was admitted to the Rio 2016 Paralympic program. And then it was when I decided, okay, I want to progress and I want to be in Rio. Have you always had the competitive spirit that obviously anybody who gets to the top of a sport or indeed becomes a doctor probably needs? Right. Yes, I, I have always been a competitive person. Um, like when I was a kid, um, my sister, she's two years older and she doesn't have any kind of uh, disability. So um, I wanted to do everything that she could do, even I was two years younger and even if I couldn't see. So I think uh, she wasn't like my role model since the beginning. Um, uh, I realized that sometimes I should work harder to achieve things, um, but this uh, I didn't matter. This, you know, um, I always um, decided to put um, difficult goals, and and I never mind uh, how much I did have to work to achieve them, but finally um, I could achieve them and. Uh, getting the goal in Tokyo, um, it has shown me one more time that um, when you work very hard towards something, uh, not always, but um, sometimes you can finally get it. But it must be very difficult, very challenging as a young girl growing up with albinism and, and not being able to see and going to a regular school and you know uh, inevitably no matter how competitive and determined you are that you know there's just going to be times that, that that stops you doing what you want to do so how did you how did you cope with that um of course there are difficult times and more i think when you are uh, younger or, or when you start new things because sometimes you have to face like uh, barriers um, I think a lot of times uh, society um, um, understands that because you have uh, any kind of impairment you are going to be unable to to achieve something you know so you have to be like all the time um, doing a bit more than others than, to show that you are able to do the same than, that, than others. So I had difficult moments, as a, especially as a teenager, because you just sometimes wonder um, why, why do I have to be different? Um, the, the, the most challenging thing about albinism sometimes is not the vision impairment, it's like the physical appearance. You know, at schools, uh, it's nothing new that kids just sometimes uh, do naughty things and naughty, naughty comments about someone who is different. And it, it was not different in my case. But uh, luckily, um, I had a very supportive uh, family. Um, not a lot, but some very supportive friends. So this has been very important for me to give me confidence and to believe in me. And mm. um, I think this was the most important to overcome those uh, difficult times. 
And if you could tell your or show your teenage self the picture of you in your Spanish national kit on the front cover of Time magazine, uh, I would probably blow your teenage mind, would it? I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe. I mean, um, I wouldn't believe. And for me, uh, even now, um, it is uh, quite strange uh, because um, like I had had some challenging years from going to Rio and Tokyo um, because I was doing my uh, medicine specialty and also trying to train as a full-time athlete. So when you're trying to try to full work and full train, uh, it's absolutely mad. Um, but I could see this as a normal uh, daily life. So when someone was surprised uh, with this and decided to put it in the front cover of time, uh, for me, it was like very surprising because for me, it's, it's, it's normal. Now that I am a full-time athlete and this year I could uh, get to know how it's to be a full-time athlete and not working and being able to recover from one session to another, I look back and I realize that um, what I did, it was um, quite challenging. Absolutely. And incredibly important for, you know, for, for people, for the, you know, there's the, the We The 15 movement as well and, and, it, and just to have that exposure to have, you know, a, a Paralympic champion who happens to have albinism on the front cover of a magazine like that, that must, you know, th that will do an awful lot for an awful lot of people that are going through what you went through as a kid as well, presumably. Um, I think it is very important that uh, people with um, a different body appear in places and this is no different with albinism. Um, the situation of people with albinism around the world is very different, like from Europe, Europe to Africa. So it is very important that um, this condition is known and that people with albinism are respected everywhere, doesn't matter where they are born. So uh, I feel happy to imagine that uh, me to appear in this magazine uh, will be helpful to the well-being of other people with any kind of disability. And I think it's also nice uh, to have um, a Spanish doctor in the cover of this magazine because um, our country has gone ahead very difficult times uh, during the pandemic, especially last year. And it's like, um, a recognizement to, to all the healthcare professionals that are still um, battling there. Yeah, very true. And, and did you, was your interest in medicine presumably driven somewhat by your condition as well? Uh, well, I don't think uh, I was especially interested in medicine because my, my father, uh, who is now retired, he was a doctor. Uh -huh was an anesthesiologist and I was always interested in, in medicine. Uh, but um, um, I, I always, um, I, I was never 100% never sure that I was going to be able to uh, study this career. And then it was also difficult when I started working 
because um, it's not frequent to have people with disabilities in the world of, of medicine. So you have to um, break uh, a lot of barriers. What, what is your specific field? And yeah, how, how does that impact on your professional, what you, know, what you can do? How do you uh, work around it? Yeah, it's difficult. Like in medicine, there are a lot of specialities. And when you study, when you finish your career, you have to choose, make one exam and you have to choose which of them. And because of my impairment, I was unable to do the most of them. So I did uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, it's very related to physiotherapy. And I had also studied physiotherapy before. So I had a very good and solid base um, that helped me a lot uh, during all my uh, medicine specialty. I mean, maybe without the other, I wouldn't be able to, to do it. And of course, um, there are very specific uh, skills like things related to images that I am like, even if I want, uh, I am not going to be able to do them. Uh, not now and, and very probably not in the future, but there are other things that yes, I can do. And luckily in the Spanish system, uh, I was able to, to have this um, uh, education. And as someone who's, you know, you've been through a lot personally and, and through sport, but you know professionally then in 2020 the Tokyo Games was put on pause you were then working you know in the, in the middle of like you said an absolute national crisis so how did for, you know someone who's who's had some pretty difficult years how did 2020 stack up in terms of in terms of those years uh, well, 2020 was very uh, difficult for me uh, for everyone I think it was um, uh, first of all, the games were delayed. Um, there was a critical situation which was affecting globally. Um, at work, it was very stress stressful because we, at the beginning, we didn't know uh, how to act with things, how to protect uh, the people, how to manage all this situation. And every day we arrived to work and we had a meeting with our boss and he gave us the numbers and the numbers each day were worse. Like more people who have died, more people who were in, in care units, in the in intensive care units. And it was like very bad news uh, every day. So until we could see that things were improving, it was difficult. Uh, then at the beginning of the year, before the coronavirus arrived, um, I was also diagnosed with a hair genetic condition. And uh, it was under questions if I could keep uh, doing my sport mm. until I had the genetic testing. Then the genetic testing came and uh, it was compatible with triathlon, but I had to start uh, some uh, treatment with medication, which was difficult to manage with uh, training because it took down your um, heart rate. So I felt sometimes uh, very physically tired and dizzy and, and with a lot of side effects. So. Uh, my goal during the pandemic, uh, while training at home, was to be able to be back to my running speed and to my bike power, uh, even having this uh, medication program. 
And then when I went back to training outdoor and swimming and racing, um, it was very challenging because I just was doing training and, and high intensity training and racing. And I was just thinking if I was um, being very selfish with myself or if I should be there or if I should be at home and, and, and maybe sports, uh, competitive sports uh, was not 100% uh, good for me. And it was uh, very difficult to cope with all, all of this. Um, then in the summer, I had a little surgery to get, get one device implanted. And uh, finally, I started to work with a sports psychologist to, to prepare that I decided I wanted to go to Tokyo and to be the best in Tokyo. And you cannot be thinking while training that you shouldn't be there. Uh, if you want to get uh, strong and enjoy the process to the games. So I finally, at the end of the year, decided to start to working with a sports psychologist and it has been like the night and the day for me. I mean, now I'm feeling very happy with my sport. I'm feeling very confident. Um, this is like, um, luckily 2020, it was 365 days and no more. <laughs> and, <laughs> Um, I think I have learned in, from all of this, but it has been um, absolutely difficult. Well, and you've got the kind of the twin, you, I guess, getting pulled in two very different directions. If you have your Paralympic dreams and goals and know what you need to get there, but you're dealing with the severity of a situation. And, and like you said, you know, is it to feel, oh, is it flippant almost to to be thinking about training when this is going on and you know no matter how bad the situation you have to you you do have to think about yourself as well don't you it's you know it's it's great and obviously everyone should be selfless where possible but at some point you've just got to take what's best for you as well and, and run with that yes uh, these kind of decisions i are difficult and i am just sharing this with you because I am 100% sure that this uh, has ever happened to our other triathletes like elite or para triathletes or junior ones or um, it's very difficult to, to manage all this information and for me that I am a doctor and I understand everything um, it was like um, quite uh, hard you know but uh, I think uh, health comes first, like individually and also for the um, community, but individually it's the most important and, and triathlon it's, it's very important, but um, there's nothing as important as life. Um, and I remember this sentence that was said by a French uh, Logan Vidal some years ago when he had some um, big, big challenges. I really admired him and I remember him a lot last year. And, and, and I want to share this because uh, when there's an athlete with this kind of situations, I think uh, it's very important to know how to ask for help. And, and also if you work with an athlete who has um, one of these challenging health situations, you have to pay attention to this and, and try to help because it's absolutely um, difficult. Hmm. Yeah, I, if there's one positive to come out of the circumstances of the Tokyo Games, I suppose it's that that conversation has been more to the fore, hasn't it? And 
people have been able to talk out a bit more or feel like they have and it's actually become sort of entwined with this with these games that that you know mental health is is not something that should just be shut away and and put to the back seat absolutely absolutely like um maybe in during the olympics or the case of the simon biles that uh, spoke about this uh, she's one of the very influential athletes uh, worldwide, I think. And having her uh, talk about this is absolutely important for the whole sports community. Um, I think uh, all the athletes, when we go to the Olympics or the Paralympics or World Championships, we uh, need to manage a lot of uh, like uh, pressure and, and fears and, and needs. Uh, very difficult you know when you go to the olympics or the paralympics and there are three medalists in each event and there are a lot of athletes the most of them who don't get a medal and sometimes you we all train as hard it doesn't matter if you finish first or or fifth or or whatever we all train very hard and sometimes um, I, I i don't think the the society is uh, fair with with the athletes in, in this way. I was fifth in Rio and and after the race I felt absolutely disappointed. And you know, a fifth place is is not that bad. Uh, I, I really believe it's not that bad, but the, when I finished the race, I was crying and I felt really alone and really worried because I had put a lot of work there. And you know, now I I feel like um happy with myself because I, I could in five years uh, get much uh, better as an athlete and, and, and I could perform the, the best race in, in Tokyo. So knowing you didn't want that feeling again, was that part of your preparation in a way? Did, did, did you find yourself sort of going back to that? Those... Um, I didn't want to get myself back to that, never. And and of course, I, I learned a lot from that. You know, it was some weeks that were difficult, but then you you just say, okay, next season I will do better. And and my guide, uh, when we came back from Rio, she told me, okay, you are fifth, and this is your uh, fair place at the moment. If you want to be um, ahead, you need to train harder. Uh, maybe you can do it. Uh, we don't know, but you have to work harder and work harder and work harder. And this is what I have done uh, in all these years. Um, I feel happy about Tokyo that um, even I was racing uh, with the factor. I did the fastest race uh, in all the girls. So this is what means more to me from Tokyo uh, because I could do the best run, the best bike and one of the best streams. So I'm happy with that. Um, and now I have to think about uh, future goals uh, to to do in the sport. Mm. Yeah. So at the end of 2020, you you had spoke to the sports psycho psychologist, and and then it was yeah. very much sort of apart from obviously the slight nagging doubt as to whether it would happen, but it was basically all guns towards towards Tokyo. And and you were training in Lanzarote with Sarah. Is that right? Yeah, and we were training in, in Lanzarote, you know, in the Sands Beach uh, Resort. It's a, a place that I go um, every year. Um, Lanzarote is a good place for triathlon. 
um, now it's a bit strange because with the pandemic there's not uh, as many people as as usually but uh, we like going there and the roads are nice and we were there like 12 days and then we left to um, Sierra Nevada. Uh, Sierra Nevada is a high altitude uh, training facility here in Spain. Uh, in fact, they were very happy because uh, Christian Blumenfeld had been doing preparation there. Mm. And uh, it's very hard to do the training there, but uh, we really we really like um, this place uh, because it's hard. But when I come back to uh, the sea level, uh, I feel very strong. And then we did some two other weeks in Barcelona. We were in a bubble before try, traveling to Tokyo, all the Spanish teams. So we didn't have any coronavirus case in the whole national team of all the sports. Mm. And I was also doing um, heat chamber preparation in both in, in altitude and then in Barcelona uh, because we knew the conditions in Tokyo uh, were going to be very hard. In fact, I was very afraid of this of this situation and when I was watching the, the males race of the Olympic Games, um, I was really feeling like um, I, I had a bit of fear to this um, because I had also always a lot of difficulties running in the heat and also because of the hair condition, it's uh, more uh, challenging if you get, get a, have a dehydration problem, it's uh, the most dangerous thing. So I did a lot of preparation for, for Tokyo in this sense. And well, I think I, I did it quite well because even if it was hard, I, I could manage all the training sessions in Japan. And just finally, so this podcast will come out uh, after the results of the IPC athlete committee uh, vote, but you, you obviously, um, a candidate put yourself forward for that as well. Uh, and just, yeah, interested to hear how you, you know, the, the kind of things that you feel can be brought to the sport still, you know, an awful lot of has happened over the past sort of four or five editions of the games and, Jack Rogg obviously passed away, but he was very much sort of fundamental in, in the, the raising of the profile of the IPC and so on and, and the games themselves. So is it a case of just continuing that work? And is, are there specific things that you, you feel are important and need to be more considered? No, I, I think uh, the work that has been done for all, all the Paralympic movement in general in the last years uh, it's it's been really good and we can see that the the parasports are getting uh, bigger and bigger and the audience of the sports of the parasports are getting bigger and bigger i think uh, the games in london 2012 were um, a point when uh, it had a before and and after like um, things i think are going well um, I have decided to, like with my country, to, to make this uh, candidate because, uh, um, first of all, uh, triathlon is still a very new sport into the Paralympic uh, sports. And uh, I think uh, we have to try and get a representation there in the Athletes Council. It's, uh, finally, it's the, the place where the athletes can can show their voice and when uh, where our sport could show uh, our voice and our concerns. 
um, I, I wish that triathlon can get more numbers into the Paralympics and and keep growing. I think it's one of the most mm. um, most powerful sports in in para sports uh, triathlon because it has everything. Um, also, I I when the the National Paralympic Committee talked me about this, I I accepted the proposal because like last year. When I have um, the health challenges, I just was thinking that if I could not keep doing the sport at an elite level, I wanted to keep uh, giving something to the sport. So I decided to to accept that challenge. And now that even I can keep doing triathlon, I feel happy that I can maybe give things to the sport not only in the race uh, course yeah i see you're right it is important to remember that was only the second time that triathlon has been in the paralympics and yeah there's a there's a long way to go still yeah there's a long way to go still but i think we are in the good uh, situation um I hope, and I don't know if we already know that in Paris we could get more slots for the sport. Uh, we had 60, I think, in Rio, mm -hmm. and we had 40 in Tokyo, but only four categories going in. And I hope that at any moment, um, like every athlete has the fair possibility to race because every, like currently, all categories could race, but not in the most fair situation. So I hope in the future the sport can get more slots. This is not easy, and and it depends on on, on IPC decisions. But I think triathlon has a lot of potential. Um, I hope that um, when its games uh, finish uh, in the next years, more people will come into the sport and will make uh, the level grow and grow and grow. It has changed a lot since, like, when I won my first World Championships in New Zealand in 2012 in Auckland, I say I could race in the kilometer in four minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, now, if you race uh, in that speed, you don't have chances to be in the podium or even to be in the World Championships. And this is very good for the sport that time passes and 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 the level gets higher and higher and higher yeah well thanks ever so much uh susanna it's been brilliant talking to you and fascinating hearing all about your career and times in tokyo thank you very much for calling and for making um the 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 para triathletes to the, the people to know uh, what is our reality that it is not far different from the olympic athletes and and i hope that in three years we we can have a, a really good triathlon races uh, at least as good as in tokyo even if not better and i i also i believe in a very good future for para triathlon in the upcoming years absolutely Great. With you at the forefront. Thanks ever so much, Susanna. Thank you very much.